Well, friends, let's stand for the reading of God's Word as we continue our series through some of the covenants of the Old Testament as we look at shadows of the Savior and see how the Old Testament foreshadows the person and work, the advent, the incarnation of our blessed Lord Jesus. This morning we're going to be spending time in Isaiah 8 and 9. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God. The Lord spoke to me again. This is Isaiah speaking. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word but it will not stand, for God is with us. For the Lord spoke thus to me, with his strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the ways of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken, they shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me their signs, portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness. Before I read verse 22, remember, friends, you may not realize this. This is the context of Christmas. When you read Isaiah 7 and 9, in the Old Testament, those extremely famous words that point ahead to the personal work of Jesus. This is the context of Christmas. Verse 22, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. 
Now, a couple of years ago, I read a very interesting book by an author I've mentioned to you before, Malcolm Gladwell, called Talking to Strangers. Talking to Strangers, what we should know about the people we don't. His premise being that people tend to default to the truth or default to trust when meeting with strangers for the very first time. That is, we tend to take at face value the things that new people tell us. We trust them, we tend to, even if we should know better. Take, for instance, fascinatingly, British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain and his trust in Adolf Hitler's promise that all Hitler really wanted was to take part of the Sudetenland, the ethnically German part of Czechoslovakia, and that he had no interest in Poland or any other parts of Europe. Chamberlain trusted Hitler in part because Hitler gave the British Prime Minister, quote, the double handshake that he reserves for especially friendly demonstrations, okay? Fascinatingly, Chamberlain was one of the few European leaders to have actually sat down with Hitler face-to-face before the war began. He did so on three occasions, and he would have been far better off to have read Hitler's autobiography, Mein Kampf, which means my struggle or my fight, where Hitler lays out his aspirations, political ideology for Germany. That's all he needed to know. Rather than standing up to Hitler, Chamberlain decided to trust him and to appease him, to allow him to go just this far, but no farther. In fact, after one such meeting, Chamberlain comes back and famously announces to the people of Britain, my good friends, for the second time in our history, a British prime minister has returned from Germany bringing peace with honor. I believe it is peace for our time. Go home and get a nice quiet sleep. Sadly, it was less than a year later that Hitler ran roughshod over Poland and the rest of Europe and World War II began. The darkness had started to fall. History has not been kind to Neville Chamberlain because Neville Chamberlain put all his trust in the wrong person. History has also not been kind to the king who sat on David's throne in Jerusalem and presided over the events of our passage. No, history has not been kind to King Ahaz, who was ruling and reigning in Jerusalem in approximately 733 B.C. Because just like Chamberlain, King Ahaz, king in Jerusalem, put his trust and faith in the wrong person. Okay, so connecting this to what we're doing so far in terms of We're looking at shadows of the Savior from the Old Testament in our Advent series. We're looking at the ways that the Old Testament covenants foreshadow the incarnation, the birth, life, and death of the Lord Jesus. We look at God's covenant with Adam. We've seen God's covenant with Noah. We've seen God's covenant with Abraham and Moses. And now we're looking a little bit at God's covenant with David. We confessed in our call to worship. We confessed that God made a promise to David that one of David's offspring would rule and reign forever. That one of David's offspring would have an everlasting kingship, okay? 
Well, as of the time that this passage is written, that promise was very much in doubt, okay? Like I said, we're 733 B.C. This is the context of Christmas, 733 years before the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just 12 years before the events of this passage, around 745 B.C., there was a massive context-changing event that happened in Assyria. There was a young man named Pul, P-U-L, who engaged in a bloody coup, assassinated a somewhat weakened king of Assyria, and took the throne for himself. And he took on a royal name, a regnal name that came to be feared all over the ancient Near East, Tiglath Pileser III. When Tiglath Pileser III assumed the throne in Assyria, the landscape of the ancient Near East changed. He very quickly consolidated and organized the Assyrian kingdom in ways that had never happened before. Tiglath Pileser created the first professional standing army the world had ever seen. Within just 12 years, Tiglath Pileser had built Assyria into the most powerful empire the world had ever seen. And at the time of our passage, all the nations around Assyria were cowering in fear. They were in a full-blown panic. Do you know why they were in a full-blown panic? Because the Assyrian policy was, was to subject the nations around them to vassal status. Okay, what they would do is they would, they would impose tribute on these nations. In other words, in exchange for your survival, the king of Assyria would allow a local king to continue to rule and reign over their local area given that that king would pay massive tribute to the king of Assyria. It was like an extortion plan. And over those years, a number of those nations around Assyria had gone bankrupt. They couldn't pay. They didn't know what to do. They could not afford the tribute. So two nations just to the north of Ahaz in Jerusalem. So Ahaz is the son of David. He's the king. He's ruling and reigning in Jerusalem. Two nations to his north. Okay, they're desperate to get out from under the yoke of Assyria. They can't afford it. And they figure the only way that they can get Assyria off their back is if they have Ahaz and the southern kingdom join them in a coalition. Okay? which Ahaz is reluctant to do. And so these two nations, so the context of this passage, two nations to the north of Ahaz have invaded. And they are running roughshod over the southern kingdom. And Ahaz and the people of the southern kingdom, they are in a bad way. They are in a world of hurt. And they don't know what to do. And so it's into that situation that God sends the greatest prophet of them all, perhaps, Isaiah. Isaiah enters the scene, and he meets with Ahaz, and he has a message from the Lord. And Isaiah tells Ahaz, trust in me. Trust in me. You don't need to do anything. 
You don't need to, you don't need to um, try to repel this advance. Just trust in me, sit back, and I will take care of these two nations that are running roughshod over you. If you want to survive, do nothing but trust in me. Can you imagine um, the faith that it would have taken to, like, trust in the word of Isaiah, or the word of the Lord through Isaiah? Okay, you're asked to just sit back and do nothing and trust in the Lord to take care of these two nations that are invading you and are running roughshod all over your country. I mean, there was a lot on the line there. I mean, because Ahaz, I mean, like, should he, should he reach out to another nation and ask for help and seek aid from other places? Like, if he didn't do that, it was going to be too late. And so what was Ahaz to do? There was a lot on the line. And it reminds me of the choices that we have to make all the time. Imagine in your own life, hard decisions that you've had to make. You know, should I trust in the Lord? Should I believe what he says? Should I commit myself to him in this situation? Or should I do what I think is best? I can't imagine a much more difficult situation than perhaps maybe a young couple, even a young Christian couple, who um, experience an unplanned pregnancy before marriage. Can you imagine a more difficult situation than that? Young lady finds out that she's pregnant. They're not married. Maybe they weren't planning on getting married. And the Lord would say to that young couple, trust in me. This seems completely overwhelming. Um, there are so many concerns you're worried about what people would think. What is your family going to think? What are your friends going to think? How might this impact your career? How might this impact your life if you go forward with the pregnancy? And the Lord would say to that couple, I'm in control. I created that child in your womb. That child is made in my image. Trust in me. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be a part of every aspect of this. Trust in me. There are endless examples like that where the Lord would call his people in the midst of a very difficult situation. Trust in me and not in your own wisdom or ability to take care of the situation. Trust in my provision for you. That's what's happening here. Ahaz did the worst thing he could have done. Instead of trusting in the Lord, we've talked about this before, do you remember what Ahaz did? Ahaz reached out, so instead of trusting in the Lord, and God's word through Isaiah, Ahaz reached out to the king of Assyria, Tiglath Pileser III, and asked for his help, and bought him off, and sent a massive tribute up there in the hopes that the king of Assyria would come down and take care of the two nations that were harassing him. And that's exactly what happened. Second Chronicles tells us about this. Second Chronicles 28 reads, So Tiglath Pileser, the king of Assyria, came against Ahaz and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. For Ahaz took a portion from the house of the Lord and gave tribute 
to the king of Assyria, but it did not help him. In other words, the very thing that Ahaz was trusting in other than the Lord was the very thing that let him down. Whatever we trust in beyond the Lord and his grace will always let us down. So let's look at our text. So look at eight, Isaiah chapter 8 verses 5 through 8. This is the context. context. Darkness is descending on Jerusalem. The nation that Ahaz had put his trust in is now sweeping through the land, bringing a darkness that wouldn't lift, really, for over 700 years. Look at Isaiah chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. This is the context of Christmas. The Lord spoke to me again, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh, that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin, that's the king of Syria, and the son of Remaliah, another northern king. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And so what you have here is this contrast. Look at verse 6. Because of this people, they refused the waters of Shiloh. What in the world does that mean? The waters of Shiloh. The waters of Shiloh, those are the springs that fed the people of God in Jerusalem. Like the Gihon Springs are the springs that make life in Jerusalem possible. And over the years, they had diverted the Gihon Springs into this little channel of water that would sustain and provide life to Jerusalem. But it wasn't flashy. It wasn't overwhelming. It wasn't like the river Euphrates. The river Euphrates is like a metaphor for Assyria. If you look at verse 6, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh, something seemingly quiet, something seemingly insignificant, because you've refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. In other words, there's this contrast between the waters of Shiloh, God's faithful provision for all of his years, in contrast to the mighty waters of Assyria, which would seem more impressive, more capable of bringing help. But in fact, that was not the case. Look at verse 7. They were going to trust in the river Euphrates, if you will, if what appeared to them mighty and strong. Verse 7. And it will rise over all its channels. In other words, you trust in the river Euphrates, it's going to continue to flow. It will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep into Judah. It will overflow, whereas the waters of Shiloh won't. They bring peace and life. Oh no, not this river. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land. Oh, Emmanuel. In other words, how could you be trusting in the king of Assyria? He is not going to stop with the defeat of these two nations. He's going to sweep out over you as well. Look at verses 11 through 15. Here's what I'll say. Here's what I love about this, if you can just stick with me. If you would have just picked up Isaiah chapter 8, you know, it, sometimes it's hard to make sense of this. What does all this mean? But when you understand what it means, the Bible comes alive. When you understand the darkness that is falling in this text, 
and how this sets the stage for something over 700 years in the future, it's just amazing. It, it, it comes alive in technicolor. Verses 11 through 15. For the Lord spoke thus to me, Isaiah, with his strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Now, this is interesting. He's saying to Isaiah, don't share the outlook of the people. The outlook of the people is this. They think that Isaiah's counsel to the people to trust in the Lord is a conspiracy, is a trap, okay? The people of the southern kingdom thinks it's crazy to do nothing and trust in the Lord. They think it's obvious we need to reach out to Assyria for help. And so the Lord is telling Isaiah, don't share the perspective or worldview of this idolatrous people, okay? They're trusting in Assyria. They're fearing him. But your fear and your trust needs to be in the Lord. Look at verse 13. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy, not Assyria. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Jerusalem. In other words, who are trusting in the wrong thing, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many shall stumble on it. Of course, Jesus is called the stone on which people stumble. Verse 15, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. They have chosen to trust in Tiglath-Pileser III and they are going to face the consequences. Go to verses 19 through 22. This is how bad things have gotten. Rather than trusting in the Lord and looking to Him for wisdom and understanding and guidance, okay, they're going to look to the dead. They're going to look to mediums, if you will, and practice divination. Verse 19, and when they, the people say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Well, of course they should. Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? I mean, things had gotten very, very dark. Well, look at verse 20. No, they should go to the teaching and the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, meaning God's word, it is because they have no dawn, they have no future. Verse 21, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. In other words, now they are feeling the consequences of their actions. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. They're so angry that things have not worked out well. So like when Assyria comes in, what they would do is like, so these, these nations that refused to provide tribute and rebelled, they would come in and they would take tens of thousands of the people into captivity and take them away. And the economy would be totally ruined. That's what's happening here. Verse 22. They will look to the earth. I mean, they're, the people, they're looking for help. The people of the southern kingdom. But behold, just distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, 
and they will be thrust into thick darkness. They're work looking to the world for help now, and help isn't coming. Help's not coming from the world, okay? It's going to come from another place. This is the context of Christmas. Isaiah is doing everything he can to paint a picture of darkness and despair and hopelessness. This passage embodies how the people of God habitually trusted in the wrong things, the flashy things, the worldly things, rather than in the small, quiet grace of God for them. So into this, God Almighty through Isaiah speaks a word of hope. Christmas is on the way. Look at Isaiah chapter 9. Go to panel 6 in your bulletin. You have read this passage countless times. You know, chapter 9 doesn't have the meaning. The light of chapter 9 doesn't have the wonder without the darkness and the hopelessness of chapter 8. So right after chapter 8, verse 22, and the threat of being thrust into dick, uh, thick darkness, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naph Naphtali. Zebulun and Naphtali were on the border of the northern kingdom. And so when Assyria and Babylon and other nations would come down to invade Jerusalem, they always had to go through Zebulun and Naphtali. Zebulun and Naphtali were always the first to bear the brunt of these foreign invasions, okay? And what we're going to see is that those two areas that received the brunt of it, who got the worst of it at the first, they're going to get the first of the blessing when the child comes. Chapter 9, verse 1, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But look at this. But in the latter time, this is 733 years before the birth of Jesus. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. That is a prophecy about the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Let me read from Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4 we read, And leaving Nazareth... I'm sorry guys, this is just, this is mind-boggling. <laughs> Who could have planned this? What kind of intelligence could have brought together all the details and all the timing to set up this? Matthew 4. After leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. And so what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. That's where Jesus started his ministry. That's where the light would dawn for the people of God, the place that had been plunged into darkness would see the first rays of light 
That's where Jesus set himself up initially. Incredible. Let's continue. Isaiah 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness for all these years, they have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, there is emphasis there, and it's hopeless. It's, it's, it's so difficult. On them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Great things are coming. Why? Verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, like these nations that have enslaved the people of God, you have broken as on the day of Midian. And so like when Gideon delivers this most unlikely of victories, this coming one is going to do the same. Verse 5. This is a metaphor for future victory. For every boot of the tramping warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. In other words, you know, we're going to win and we're going we're to burn up our enemy's clothes. It's a metaphor for victory. Well, here's why. And again, this is like, this is the last thing that you would imagine. Who's going to affect this? How is this going to happen? How will this be brought to bear in the history of redemption. Well, the last thing you would expect is for a child to be mentioned. Notice this all throughout Scripture. It's, it's typically the things that appear to be the weakest and the most overlooked, the most seemingly insignificant those are the things that God Almighty uses to deliver His people. Rather than trusting in the mighty waters of the Euphrates, they should have trusted in the waters of Shiloh. And rather than trusting in, you know, the king of Assyria, God delivers a child. How is it? Think about the power and the wisdom of God to deliver His people through the ministry of a child. That's how powerful he is. That's how great he is. Counterintuitive. Totally defies the world's standards, what the world thinks is important. Here's why. Here's how the darkness is going to be dispelled. Verse 6. Again, these are some of our favorite verses in the whole Bible. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called. And before I read this, like, again, don't take this for granted. You know this like the back of your hand. But like, how could a child have these kind of attributes given to him? How could a human being bear these kinds of names? A child. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Can you imagine a worse counselor than Ahaz? Or many of David's progeny? No. Oh no, this king, his counsel is going to be right and trustworthy. He's going to be called Mighty God. It's inconceivable that that could be attributed to a child. Everlasting Father. He's not going to be some distant, remote, 
tyrant. This is going to be a Messiah that engages us in relationship into whose family we will be adopted. He is wonderful counselor, mighty God. He is everlasting Father. He's the Prince of Peace. Look at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord will do this. I can't imagine a better description of the Lord Jesus Christ than we get in Isaiah chapter 9. This is going to be the king that never fails us. I mean, how this harmonizes with what we read about, like in Corinthians, like where God uses the what to accomplish the what? God uses the foolish things, the things that the world perceives to be foolish to shame the wise. God is using the ministry of a child to deliver his people, not necessarily from political tyranny, but from spiritual oppression. One wonderful thing about this passage is like, and, and, and as Americans in the 21st century, we really can't relate to what it would be like to live in this kind of darkness. You'd almost have to go back to the horrors of Nazi Germany when people were taken to concentration camps and went to extermination camps and Poland and Europe descended in darkness. And, and that gives us kind of a reference point to what the people of God were feeling when Assyria just swept over the land. And that's to give us a picture of what being enslaved to sin is like and how hopeless it is and how terrible it is and how there's no way of escape apart from God's provision and the ministry and wonder of this child. Friends, our lives are filled with hard choices. And the question of this text for us this morning is, who are you going to trust? In the difficult things in life, are you going to trust God's provision for you and the precious person of the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are you going to trust in your own understanding? I promise you this. This text teaches us this. Whatever difficulty you find yourself in, you can trust in this son of David. He will never lead you astray. He will be with us and guide us all the way to the end. Amen and amen. Father in heaven, we just don't have the time. We don't have the time to mine all the riches of this text. We thank you for this um, visceral picture of, of hopelessness and darkness that you have conveyed to us through this text which is intended to really picture an even deeper and more foreboding darkness. The darkness that comes from being lost and estranged from God. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you did not leave us there but into that 
darkness. The sun rose and a light dawned and a child was given. This amazing child who would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace over 700 years before he would be born and fulfill his ministry. Father, as we face a variety of difficult choices, Father, help us to trust in you. Father, the world would offer us a wide variety of other things that we should focus on and, and trust in, Lord. Help us to trust for your provision for us and the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.